open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 10. The Gospel of John chapter 10 and welcome to week 27 of our journey through the Gospel of John. And I want to begin our time this morning this way. How many of you guys remember the famous McDonald's lawsuit where McDonald's was sued for serving or selling hot coffee that was actually hot? You remember that? So basically in 1992, 79-year-old Stella Lyback spilled her McDonald's coffee in her lap. And as a result, she received third-degree burns. Uh, Ms. Lyback's insurance refused to pay the entire cost of her medical bills, leaving her to kind of hold the bag. So she went to McDonald's for compensation for medical bills and other injuries. And McDonald's, of course, refused to pay or settle. Um, Lyback then filed a lawsuit against McDonald's, and the jury awarded her $2.9 million. So after that lawsuit, warning labels became basically the new normal, became the requirement of the day. So McDonald's basically put neon signs now on their coffee that says, yes, this is hot, please don't pour it in your lap. And so warning signs basically became a normal part of life. Well, I happened to find a website this week that, that was called 21 Stupid Warning Labels That Will Make You Feel Like a Genius. So just basically 21 warning labels that make us realize that the world that we live in is not always very bright. Um, here's a few of the warning labels. So a warning label on a wheelbarrow not intended for highway use. <laughs> guess you have to warn other people. So a warning label on a baby stroller, remove baby before folding. <laughs> warning label on a jet ski, this is my favorite, never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel level. Warning level on one brand of hair color. Do not use as ice cream topping. Because somewhere, someone has. Warning label on a car sunshade. So what you put up when you, in a parking lot or when you park. Remove shade before operating vehicle. Warning label on an iron. Do not iron clothes while on the body. And then warning label for a microwave. Do not use to dry your pets. I'll give you a second to think through that. Okay, anyway, so although we live in a world of warning labels, there is one particular warning that many people continually choose to ignore. It's the warning that could be affixed to the Gospel of John and especially to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. And that is this, warning Refusing to believe Jesus is hazardous for your eternal health. Refusing to believe Jesus is hazardous for your eternal health. And today we come to the middle of John 10, which is Jesus' final public discourse or his final disclosure of himself to the Jews, kind of in a public setting. If you just do the math, there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. We're approaching halfway through John um, Chapter 10, so we are basically in the center of it all. And in the center of the Gospel of John is the call to believe in Jesus, to believe in him. Of the 21 verses we come to this morning, 18 describe those who remain in unbelief, while only three verses describe those who believe. So what we have here is a ratio of our world a majority of our world who do not and will not believe in Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, let's dive in the word and into the claims of Christ so that we might continue to grow in our belief of him. So if you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to read verses 22 through 42 of John 10. And it says this, at, the, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews pick up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true and many believed in him there. So let's pray. Father, we just come before you now, come to your holy, powerful word. We ask that you would speak to us, God, in a way that would help us to grow in our belief of you, strengthen our belief, God, we pray today. We know that's the whole purpose of the gospel of John, that we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we may have life in your name. Lord, help us to grow in that belief. Or, Lord, we pray for anyone in this room that that is or will be here, God, that has never believed, that today would be a day of salvation. Just speak to us, O oh God, by your word, through your spirit. Open our eyes and help us to see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. So when we come to verse 22, what we just read, two months have passed since verse 21. So it was no longer the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in the fall, it is now the Feast of Dedication, which happened in the winter. And the reference to the winter, of course, could also be a metaphorical reference to the hard-hearted, cold-hearted hostility that Jesus has faced and will continue to face. So by this time, the attitude of the people towards Jesus was very cold. Their hearts had become very hardened. So it was the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. So physical climate as well as spiritual climate. So then the Feast of Dedication was also known as the Feast of Lights, which occurs every year close to Christmas, but a different festival. We know it as Hanukkah. So Jesus is in the temple during the Feast of Hanukkah. It's an eight-day feast. And I want to give you a little background 
here to help us understand the impact of what John is writing. So a little history lesson for the next two or three minutes. So just hang on with me. So Hanukkah, uh, the Festival of Lights, the Feast of Dedication, was a non-biblical feast. What I mean by that is unlike Passover, unlike Pentecost, unlike the Feast of Tabernacles, this was not a feast that was instituted or commanded by God in the Old Testament. You won't find Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication in the Old Testament. It was a festival that basically had its beginning between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there's a 400-year gap between the Old Testament, the last book there, and the New Testament. And this is what happened. During that period, there was a Syrian ruler by the name of Antiochus who gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means basically, I am the great one. So he was very humble, as you can imagine. If you call yourself the great one, you're not very humble. So he, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, he, was, he loved all things Greek. So he imposed Greek culture, Greek language, Greek everything all throughout the Middle East. He thought he would then go to Israel and force them to abandon their Jewish beliefs and become Greek in culture. So in 167 B.C., he conquered Jerusalem. After he attacked and conquered Jerusalem, he instituted a reign of terror upon the city um, of, of the Jews by a few things. He stole millions of dollars in gold and silver from the temple treasury. He instituted a law that said possessing a copy of the Torah was punishable by death. He also declared that circumcision or circumcising a child was punishable by death. In fact, during his reign, any mother that was caught uh, circumcising her child was crucified with a baby hanging around her neck. Just think about the cruelty there. He turned the temple into a temple of prostitution. He slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies, and he set up an altar to Zeus in order to displace the altar of the God of Israel. So just let that sink in for a second. And this savage persecution and religious desecration led to the faithful and pious Jews basically saying, enough's enough. Enough's enough. It's time to fight back. So they were led by a priest named Matthias who had a son named Judas Maccabeus. Now his name, Judas Maccabeus, his nickname was the Hammer, if that just tells you something. So the, you have the, the Great One versus the Hammer. So the Hammer eventually with his army conquered Antiochus and his army and kicked them out of Israel. They immediately began to purify the temple. And so they set up what would be this eight-day festival called the Festival of Lights. But here's how it happened. Here is the legend. The legend is when they came back to purify the temple, they found the menorah. They found the, the branch, seven-branch candlestick. But there was not enough oil. Now, it, it would take, according to legend, eight days for oil to be made for the menorah. So what they did is they had a little bit, and they said, this will only last us a day. And they put it in the, the lampstand, in the menorah, and they lit it. Well, it lasted eight days. So therefore, it became an eight-day festival still celebrated today called Hanukkah. So the question becomes, why does John give us all that information? And here's the answer. Because what happened with Judas Maccabeus was the last great deliverance that the Jews knew in their history. So a hero rose up, overthrew Israel's enemies, became their temp temporary, hear this, 
political military messiah became their messiah in their eyes as if it's kind of as if john wants us to know that's the kind of messiah the people were looking for that's the kind of messiah the people wanted and that that's the kind of messiah the only kind of messiah the people would accept they wanted someone who would come and lead them militarily yet they continue to reject Jesus. And even though their rejection became louder and hateful, Jesus continued to declare himself all throughout the Gospel of John as the Son of God. So he was God in human flesh. He proclaimed to be the Messiah loudly, repeatedly, and clearly. And he continued to call them in their unbelief to believe. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take four truths that rise up from these 21 verses and we're going to just unpack them together so that we can believe better. First is this, and it kind of John gives us a picture of what we must believe. Number one is this, we must believe the works of Jesus. We must believe the works of Jesus. Look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, it sounds like an honest question, but I submit to you that it was not an honest question. They simply want Jesus to say what he's always been saying, but the reason they want him to say it again is because now they want to kill him. They just want to kill him. And up to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has only claimed to be the Messiah once. In John chapter 4, to the woman at the well, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The question becomes, why didn't Jesus claim to be the Messiah more often? And the answer is because they had a misunderstanding about who the, and what the Messiah would do. They were looking for a political savior from slavery, not a heavenly savior from sin. So they were looking for a political savior from slavery, from bondage, not a heavenly savior that would save them from their sin. Now look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. And then listen to these words, the works that I do. In my Father's name, bear witness about me. And then verse 26, Jesus says, you do not believe. Later on, he says, because you're not my sheep. Think about the works that we have seen throughout the Gospel of John. It's as if Jesus is saying here, do you not remember me turning water into wine? Do you not remember me display, displaying my passion for the house of God by cleaning out and cleansing the temple? Do you not remember me graciously and miraculously healing the official son from miles away? Do you not remember me healing an invalid who had been lame for 38 years, telling him to get up and walk? Do you not remember me feeding the crowd of 20,000 with five loaves and two fish? Do you not remember being full? Do you not remember the disciples having to go plates and taking them home? Do you not remember hearing of me walking on the water in the midst of the storm to my disciples? Do you not remember me giving sight to the blind man so that he may see something that has never been done before? Jesus is saying, believe my works. Do you not know what I've done, the way I've proven myself so far? I love this illustration. Imagine if Rembrandt, went back to his elementary school and he gets his report card out and among all the A's that he earned in kindergarten, he also made an F in art class. 
So he goes to his kindergarten art teacher and he spreads out his finest paintings on the table in front of her. Now in her class on the walls are plastered the scribblings and finger painting efforts of kindergarten students. Imagine how great those are. But imagine Rembrandt pointing down at his priceless masterpieces and saying this, which one of these beautiful pictures is the reason I failed your class? Which one of these? Here, Jesus, the perfect son of God, is living in the midst of a wicked and godless society, a godless world in every action, every word, every thought, every conversation of Jesus is spotless and perfect. Not only is Jesus free from sin, he travels around healing the helpless. He restores sight to the blind. He makes the lame walk. He cures the lepers. He spreads his works out on the table in the sight of these men, and he basically says this, which one of these beautiful works is the reason you want me dead? Which one of these beautiful works, all that I have done, which one of these, pick one, which one is the reason you want to kill me? Which one? A question raised throughout the gospel is this. How is it possible for so many to see Jesus' miracles and yet reject him? Isaiah, in Isaiah 42 and 61, promised that the Spirit of God would come upon the Messiah. He would claim, proclaim good news to the afflicted. He would give hope to the outcast. He would uh, preach and give liberty to the captive. He would give comfort to those who mourn. He would give sight to the blind. He would give light to those in darkness. Jesus fulfilled all of those promises, every single one, and the people still rejected him. They refused to believe. Here's the deal. We can talk about apologetics all day long, defending our faith, and we need to defend our faith. But let me say this. The evidence is in. The evidence is in. The evidence is clear. The life of Jesus and the works of Jesus give evidence to the fact he is who he said he was. He is the Son of God, God in human flesh. There's no other explanation. You cannot bypass him and get around him. You cannot go over him because you can't go that high. You can't go under him, although you can bow yourself at his feet. Here's the deal. All of us must deal with him. We must deal with Jesus, all of us. So we must believe the works of Jesus, which leads us, number two, we must believe our security in Jesus. Or a different way to say it is this, we must believe we are secure in Jesus. Think about this. In verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Again, the claim is that Jesus is the only one who gives eternal life. His claims are exclusive. He's the only savior of sinners in the world, but his claims are also inclusive because he is the savior of the whole world. But what, the, what an unbelieving person loves to do in this moment is this. They love to drop the analogy of God on the mountaintop, right? They, all, they love to say, well, God is on the mountain and all of humanity is down um, here at the bottom. And, you know, we have many different religions and you know, one religion basically is a straight path um, up the mountain. Another religion over here is kind of twists and turns and, and a lot of different wines. Another one just kind of does the same thing. But every single religion, they all lead to the same God. 
as if someone has ever walked them all and ended up at the same place because they haven't. Now, here, let me go ahead and clear that up before we move any further. The gospel, the Christianity, is not that we've worked our way up a mountain to God. It is that God in Jesus came down the mountain to us. And he brought to us the life that we could never have apart from him. But here's the deal. What's wrong? What else is wrong with this analogy? And what's wrong with this analogy is, is this. It's so convenient for unbelievers to believe that all roads lead to heaven. As long as you're sincere, you're, you're good. But here's the problem. None of the founders of religions would ever agree with that. Just take the big three. Take the, the big three religions and the founders. Take, take Muhammad, take Moses, and take Jesus. If you ask Muhammad, Muhammad, do you believe that all roads lead to God? He would say, absolutely not. In fact, Allah has said, if you don't believe in us, we kill you. I mean, that is a proclaimed a proclamation. You think of asking Moses, Moses, do you believe that there are many ways to God? Moses would say, as I said in Deuteronomy, I set before you today life and death. Choose life. Choose life. If you, if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, are there many ways to the Father? Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Understand this. The main religions of the day, they all proclaim exclusivity. They say we're the only way. Only the world, only the, the messed up sinful mind of the world says, oh, all religions just agree together. No, they don't. They don't and they never will. Why? Because we have different pictures in different ways. And here's the point. You can believe a religion that, that somehow teaches you that you can earn your way or you can believe what Jesus did for you in earning everything for you. Oh, that we would choose him. Oh, that we would choose him. So Jesus continues here and he says to those who have believed in him, look at verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Meaning, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe in the eternal security of the believer. Not because we have an inflated view of our ability to persevere. No, if it was up to you to maintain your salvation, you would blow it. I didn't get an amen. I know, listen, I know you. You would blow it. You couldn't do it. And how do I know that? Because I know myself. If we had to earn our own salvation, if we had to hold on to God, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. Yet, what we can't do, praise God, he does. He does. If Jesus saves you, you are saved for good. If Jesus makes you spiritually alive, you will never, um, you will never spiritually die. If Jesus gives you sight, you will never go blind. If Jesus adopts you as his own, you will never be orphaned again. If Jesus takes you into his hands, you will be in his hands beyond the bounds of time. Meaning, when, the, when this age is a faint whisper in the annals of time, Jesus will still be holding his own safe and secure. Nothing and no one can touch us there in his hands. Those who follow Jesus are wrapped and protected in the hands of Jesus, which are also, according to Jesus here, wrapped and protected in the hands 
of the Father. One commentator says that we have a double-edged protective detail. We have Jesus and the Father's hands holding tight to us. But ultimately, it is not our grip on God that saves us. It is his grip on us. Therefore, what I always say is this. I don't necessarily, I don't like saying I believe in the perseverance of the saints, even though I do. I believe in the perseverance of the Savior. I believe that he will take me and he will hold me to the end. Here's a very simple illustration. A strong father is walking with his young son on a dock that sits over a river with strong currents. If this son was to fall in, there's a strong likelihood the father might not be able to get to him in time to save him. There are two ways that the father can protect his son. The father can reach out his hand to his son and say, son, you take hold of my hand and you hold on and you don't let go because if you let go, you're going to fall in. That could be one method, or the other method could be this strong father to take his son in his strong hands and in his strong arms and hold him and carry him all the way through. Now, which is the surer method? Which is the one you'd rather have? Brothers and sisters, I tell you this, I'd rather have a God who holds me and promises that he will hold me to the very end. Which is the, the picture, one one older pastor of days gone by said this it is one of the most precious things about the christian faith that our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on christ but on his firm grip of us his firm grip of us we must believe and know our security in jesus number three we must believe in the identity of jesus we must believe in the identity of Jesus. I'm going to make this quick because we've covered this so many times already in the Gospel of John. But in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If you've ever heard anybody say, Jesus never claimed to be God, first of all, they've never read the Gospel of John, and they have no idea what they're talking about. Jesus absolutely, even here, declares to be God. No, no other major world religion has a founder who claimed to be God. But here, Jesus, once again, is claiming that for himself. This is one of the most important statements regarding the deity and the nature of the Godhead. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, understand this. He was not claiming to unity of purpose. He wasn't claiming unity of mission. Although those things are true. Jesus shared the same purpose as the Father. What he is claiming here is unity of essence and unity of nature. I am. What Jesus is saying is this, I'm God. I am God. And how did those who heard him, how did they interpret or how did they understand what he was saying? I will say this, correctly. They understood it and they, they interpreted it correctly. Why? Because look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to kill him. Why? Because they knew he was claiming to be God. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works for which of them are you going to stone me? Verse 33, the Jews answered, It's not for your good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the religious leaders here accused Jesus of blasphemy, but they were the blasphemous ones. And what I mean by that is this. Any identification of Jesus that makes Jesus less than God is blasphemy. Let me say it again. Any identification of Jesus that makes Jesus less than God is blasphemy. It is blasphemy. 
the irony is found that the people believed that Jesus was a man who made himself God, but the opposite was true. Jesus was God who made himself man. Understand what's happening here. You're a man who's trying to make yourself God. No, I'm God who made myself man for you. In our day, the great stumbling block for the unbeliever is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in this day and age where Jesus lived, the great stumbling block was the incarnation. That God could become man. That God could take upon himself the human nature. That was a scandal of the first century, yet that is what we believe. And we are intended to trust in Jesus as the God-man and to grow in our trust of him. We are intended to depend on Jesus and to grow in our dependence of him. Listen, we don't just embrace the good news and just eventually say, okay, well, I'll just embrace it and then move on to something else. No, we embrace it and we continue to dwell in it and the gospel proclaims that the son of god became a son of man so that we sons and daughters of men could become children of god that is the point here we must believe the identity of jesus and then lastly lastly we must believe in the authority of jesus we must believe in the authority of jesus in verse 35 jesus says this he said very clearly, the scriptures cannot be broken. Now, let me, let me walk us through this for a second. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. You can't set aside scripture just because you don't like what it says. You can't set aside scripture. You can't choose to not believe scripture just because you don't like what it says. Did you know that Jesus repeatedly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John referred to the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God? One of the hallmarks of unbelief is the neglect of the testimony of Scripture, refusing to believe Scripture. Yet what Jesus is saying in this moment is that Scripture cannot be loosed, it cannot be released, it cannot be removed, it cannot be dismissed, it cannot be nullified. Whenever we get into discussions about the accuracy of Scripture, let me tell you where we should begin. If somebody tells you, well, do you, how can you believe the Word of God is true? Here's the, here's the question to ask. Well, what did Jesus believe about Scripture? What did he believe about Scripture? Because you know what? If, if I'm a Christian, if, if I want to be like him, if I'm following Jesus, I want to believe what he believes about Scripture. I want to believe what he believes. And if Jesus viewed Scripture as mildly important, then we're able to view Scripture as just mildly important. But that is not the attitude of Jesus concerning Scripture. He didn't view it as mildly important. He viewed it as the very word of God that endures forever. I'm often asked why I have such a high view of Scripture, and it's very simple. Let's just assume for a second the Bible is only basically reliable. Let's just say that it's not inspired. It's definitely not the word of God. But simply it's a decent historical record from history. Let's further assume that we're able to go through it with a fine-tooth comb with some of the greatest critics of Scripture and remove everything that's not considered historical from the Bible. You're going to have... A lot less pages. Let's go ahead and tell you. But after all of that, in that little piece of scripture, there would, there would still be left this man called Jesus of Nazareth. 
I don't know if you know this, he's not created in our minds. He literally existed. And we can prove his existence outside of this book. So many different ways of proving who he is. But outside, outside of that, we have a picture of Jesus, who, of Nazareth, who taught that the Bible is more than just generally reliable. He taught that the Bible would stand forever. He taught the Bible would stand forever. Or as my dad used to always say, this book will stand when the world's on fire. It will stand when the world is on fire. Now, if there's enough evidence to come to the conclusion that Jesus was a prophet, which is what many of the critics try to do, he was just a prophet, then what do we do with his prophetic teachings? That this prophet says this is the very word of God, and it will endure forever. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Just think about the Bible as a whole. The Bible as a whole. The Bible was written over a course of 1,500 years, beginning at about 1,400 B.C., written by more than 40 different individuals from many different backgrounds. You have prophets, you have fishermen, you have kings, philosophers, scholars, and poets. They, you have all of these individuals who lived in 10 different countries on three different continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, writing in one of three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, about God and his interaction with 2,390 different characters from more than 1,500 different places. You have all of that, and let me tell you this, all of Scripture agrees. There is one problem with man, that is sin. There is one answer for our problem, that is Jesus. All the Scripture points to that. It points to our need. It points to the authority of God's word to show us what our greatest need is. And think about how this ends. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Verse 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Verse 38, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, it's amazing that, as I said earlier, John 10 ends the public discourse of Jesus, his kind of public declaring of himself to the Jews. Well, if you look back in John 1, his public discourse begins with John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, his public discourse here at the end of chapter 10 ends with John the Baptist. People were saying, John never did what you're doing. John never did these signs. And it ends with saying, and they believe. So here's the question. If this is Jesus' last disclosure of himself to the Jews, and if Jesus is the authoritative one, which is who we say he is, then what, does he, what did he want them to do and us by default? What is he calling the people then and now to do? And here's the answer. Believe. Believe. Believe in him. And we know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is this. They wouldn't. They wouldn't believe. They refused to believe. They were, they were not his sheep. But here's the question for us this morning. Are you this very moment in a state of belief? Are you this very moment in a state of belief? And I ask it that way because of this. The greatest evidence, according to this book, that you are a child of God is not that you were baptized and joined a church 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. The greatest evidence that you're a child of God is not that you prayed a prayer when you were 5 years old or 10 years old. 
The greatest evidence according to this book that you are a child of God, hear this, you are believing Jesus right now. You are walking in obedience to him right now. That's the greatest evidence. The greatest evidence that you're a child of God is not what happened in your life 40 years ago. It's what's happening in your life right now. That's the greatest evidence that you are a child of God. Therefore, you can put your hope in something that happened then, or you can put your hope in what's happening now. What's happening right now. And the picture of what God is doing in your life right at this moment. Are you right now in a state of belief? Or let me put it a different way. If you look at your life now versus five years ago, have you grown in your faith? Have you grown in your belief at all? Or have you lessened in your faith? Have you lessened in your commitment? Have you lessened in your time in the word of God and time in prayer to him? It's amazing sometimes that we sit in church and we go, oh, Jesus is coming back. But yet we act like with, we act like we don't really care. I mean, because maybe we want him to come back, but we don't want to spend time with him right now. We want to spend time with him forever, but just, just not right now. Just not in my daily life. Brothers and sisters, if we look at our lives and we see a gradual decline in our belief and our trust in him, it's time for us to wake up. And it's time for us to hear Jesus call us believe. Continue to believe. Don't let what other people do or what other people say stop you from believing in me. Believe. Are we right now in a state of belief where we are believing in him? Are we growing in that belief? Oh, that we are. Oh, that we are growing in our belief of him and our obedience to him. With that said, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration, and let us pray together. Oh, God, we thank, thank you for this, your word. We thank you that John tells us that the reason he wrote this word is that we would believe. And, Lord, I pray, God, that everyone in this room has done so. I pray for anyone that, that's here today that hasn't believed, Jesus, that you are the Son of God, that hasn't confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in their heart, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead. That today would be a day of salvation. Today would be a day of turning from their sin, repenting from their sin, confessing their sin before you, God, that they are a sinner who has sinned against you. And they believe, Jesus, that you came and did for them what they could never do for themselves, die on the cross for their sin and rise from the grave. And that today would be their salvation day. Oh, God, do that today. Holy Spirit, move today. Bringing people to you. Holy Spirit, that you are in this moment, God, just taking people who are dead and making them alive. But also, Lord, I pray for those who are alive, and yet, God, we have slacked off in our belief of you. That we have let busyness, or we have let the culture, or we have let so many other things take us away from you. Lord, help us not to see belief as a one-time thing that we just move away from. Belief in you is not that. Belief in you is a continual thing, God, of what you have done and what you are doing in our lives. Help us to grow in our belief, O oh God, because your word says what you started in us, you will complete. Lord, may you finish what you started in us as we submit and surrender to you. And we just pray these things again in Jesus' name. Amen.